right in the middle of the section that John just read to you is the key to understanding what it means to be preparing other believers for the return of Jesus Christ. In verses 28 and 29, you have the very key that unlocks what a ministry of maturity looks like. Now, that's really a calling. It's not just a theological concept. It's not just a truth. It's an actual calling, and it's something that I think we need to talk about this morning as we wrap up this short series on some of the fundamental truths of being a Christ-centered, biblical, healthy church. Because what's going on in verses 28 and 29 is a calling for all believers. It's a calling ultimately to each and every one of you. And so for you to understand the calling, you first need to understand the cost. To understand the calling, you have to understand the cost. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at really the first half of the section that was read to you. We're going to look at verses 24 through 27. That's the cost of discipleship. And then the real calling of discipleship in verses 28 and 29. The cost of discipleship and the calling of discipleship. To begin with, look at verse 24 where you see that Paul says that he rejoices in the midst of something there, and it's in the midst of his suffering. Now, normally when you suffer, you don't say to somebody, I'm rejoicing in the midst of my suffering. Suffering is usually the opposite of, of rejoicing. But for Paul, the suffering that he was enduring was a suffering that led to rejoicing because the rejoicing meant that what he was doing was effective. What he was doing was working. You can always rejoice in suffering when you're suffering for something that is working. It's possible to take a look at a treatment that though it be painful, if it is going to result in your healing, can be embraced with a certain amount of joy. Joy comes when there's healing. Joy comes when there's progress. And for Paul, the very progress that's being made here is a progress in the gospel. Just to give you some context, Paul is writing to a group of people that he's never met. He's writing to the Colossian believers. He wrote a series of letters from prison when he was in Rome under house arrest. He was essentially detained. Paul was on lockdown in Rome, was not able to go about the ministry as he normally did, so... He took it upon himself to write several letters. We have them in your Bible as the prison epistles. And they're all put together. Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, they're all together in this one group because Paul wrote these letters to individuals and to churches while he was sidelined, while he was suffering, while he was in prison. But even that brought him joy because he was doing something very special. He was filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Just look at that phrase, filling up what is lacking. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound appropriate. I mean, how can the sufferings of Christ be in any way insufficient? How can you possibly tell me that, that Paul needs to add something to the sacrifice of Christ? Well, here's the thing. Paul's not adding anything to the sacrifice of Christ. Paul isn't saying that Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient. What, what Paul is doing is he is filling up or completing something that was lacking in the already perfect sacrifice of Christ. And what was that? It's delivery to unbelievers. The great area where, where all of this was lacking was that somebody had yet to actually take it and deliver it. It's the very same language that he uses in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 30, where he says of Epaphroditus that his ministry was filling up what was lacking. 
Epaphroditus almost died, he and Timothy, on a mission to bring Paul some funds that had been collected for him by the believers in Philippi and the area surrounding Philippi. But even though that collection was perfect and the collection was everything that Paul needed, somebody had to fill up what was lacking, namely the delivery of it. When you call to order a pizza, you have a desire, a desire that will be met by pizza. And, and you call and somebody perfectly puts together an all-sufficient pizza. But somebody has to get it to you. What is being offered to you is incomplete until it is delivered. And so Paul is saying in the same way that you deliver something that is of value to you, whether it is food or whether it is money, he is doing this for the gospel even though he's completely sidelined, even though he's, even though he's under house arrest in Rome. But you see, part of the cost of discipleship is often suffering. The second thing is serving. He, he says, not only am I suffering, but, but I am also called to be a servant I'm called to be literally a deacon. It's the same word we get deacon from. A deacon, remember, is a servant. And he is saying, I am being called, I'm being set apart here to serve in this particular way. He says in verse 25, to be a minister. Now, when we use the word minister, we might think of a minister as like a pastor. We call him minister. But really, the minister here is the one who is serving. The minister is the one who is doing the work. And Paul says that one of the things you have to understand, the cost of discipleship is often doing the work, doing the hard work. He's willing to do it. Beyond just the service aspect of it, there's also the stewardship. That's the next word there, stewardship. He says, I am a servant of something in particular, something that's been given to be delegated to, to me. And what's been delegated is a stewardship. It's um, the word we get um, house manager from. In fact, the word home is in the word here for stewardship. If you were a wealthy person, you would put somebody in charge of your household. You, you would be the, the property manager, the household manager. You'd be like one of those guys dressed in suits on Downton Abbey that are responsible for like the entire estate. Now see, I think of somebody different because I grew up in the golden age of television. Um, I did. I've, I've determined that after extensive study and, and just a temporary perusing of modern television. So I know for a fact that I grew up in the golden age of television because I was able to watch brand new episodes of the A-Team. And, um, and, and um, Airwolf. And one of my favorites, the greatest television show of all time, Magnum P.I. And, and, and because, well, you know why. So. One of the things that, that, that I, when I think of this house steward, you know who I think about? I think about Higgins. Remember Higgins? You know, so Higgins was like the, the short, rotund guy who dressed kind of like a, a North Korean dictator, and he would oversee the property of this famous author who you, who you never got to meet in the show. And, and then Magnum would live in the guest house, you know, by the pool and drive the Ferrari. So, like, he was the cool you know, private investigator, and Higgins was the, the, the guy who lived on the property. It was his job. He was a steward of it. Everything that went on there was under his control. Now, he didn't own it, but he had to look after it. He didn't own it, but he was responsible for it. Notice what Paul says here. He goes, I, I'm suffering, and I'm a servant because I've been entrusted with something that I'm going to give an account to God for. I don't own it. It's not mine. 
The church doesn't belong to me. It's not my church. It's his church, but I've been entrusted with it. And far more valuable than any estate is the actual church, the bride of Christ, and bringing the gospel to those who would believe and then discipling them in that gospel. He describes it here in a really beautiful way when you look at it. Go down in verse 26. He calls it the mystery hidden for ages and generations. And that's the right translation. It shouldn't say from ages and generations like, like God was hiding it from them, tucking it away so they couldn't see it. It just means that it wasn't visible for many ages and for many generations. Why? Because the entire scope of redemptive history, the whole arc of the plan of God from beginning until end, has been revealed bit by bit as it all looked forward to the arrival of Christ when he fulfilled everything that those old covenant promises were pointing to. And so at that point, the mystery was revealed. At that point, God goes public. At that point, Christ is seen as the one that all of these sacrifices pointed to. And so that mystery now revealed is the very content of what Paul shares. That's his work. That's his ministry. It's been revealed to the saints. And God has chosen to show them that he is great even among the Gentiles and all of the riches of his glory displayed that is Christ in you, the very hope of glory. So what is the hope of glory? Paul is a stewardship of the hope of glory. The hope of glory is that one day when the Lord returns and his glory is seen and the great separation happens where the sheep and the goats are separated, where believer and unbeliever are separated, where all of his enemies are destroyed and all of his chosen ones fully redeemed, that will be the day of great glory when it is shared with you and the work of the evangelist. After a person has put their faith in Christ and as the hymn writer said, leaned on him with full trust and repose, when that work is finished and they've been perfected and matured in Christ, all that will remain is for him to give that resurrected body and we'll be able to enjoy his presence in the new earth forever. That's the hope of glory. I feel like I should clarify this every time I mention it because I think in our context, we think of the hope of glory being something that we go to versus something that comes to us. You know, we often think to ourselves, well, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Well, the Bible says that when you, when you die as a believer, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You are present with him. But your ultimate state, your ultimate destination if we read the book of Revelation carefully, it is to be on a new heavens and a new earth with a new Jerusalem, and there is no temple because Christ is with us, and his glory fills everything. And in your resurrected body, you live like that forever. That's the ultimate place where you're going to be. That is the ultimate hope of glory, and that is what we're being prepared for now. But all that comes at a cost. There's a cost to Paul, and there'll be a cost to you. We're going to see what that looks like in a few moments when we apply this. But for now, let's make sure we just understand the text. Because having set up the, the cost of discipleship, let's look at the real calling of it. Notice what he says beginning in verse 28. And I love this. In the original language, it, it emphasizes the fact that it's Christ we're talking about. He says, him we proclaim. That's the way you should have it in your Bible. Him we proclaim. Him, Christ. He's the focus. He's, he's the the gospel presentation. He is what we proclaim and tell others about. Everything that we do in terms of the, the ministry of discipleship, the real, the hands-on work is, is proclaiming Christ and his finished work. And you're proclaiming that either to people who have yet to believe or to people who believe but forget. 
The proclamation of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to those who have yet to believe or to those who believe but tend to forget. And so when he is constantly proclaimed, he is constantly proclaimed, notice how many times he says this, to every man. Now that doesn't mean every man as opposed to every woman. It's just every man, every person. It's very individual. He is going to proclaim Christ to every single person individually. And I'm going to take these things a little bit out of order because I want to emphasize something before we get into the, 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 the real specifics here. I want you to look down in verse 28 and notice the word wisdom. It's an important word. Everything we do, we do in all wisdom. Sometimes people ask me how they can pray for me, and I tell them the same thing every time. Pray that I would have wisdom. Wisdom is the one thing that we can never have too much of. It's the one thing that is always being asked of us in decisions that are made every single day. But the wisdom that is required here is a very special kind of wisdom. It's all wisdom. The original, Passa Sophia, sounds like an Italian restaurant. All wisdom. Everything that we do has to be completely controlled by all wisdom in every discipleship relationship. Why? Because you have two extremely important jobs. Look at it. Number one is to correct, and number two is to teach. Number one is to correct, number two is to teach. Let's look at the word correct first. The word correct is really interesting. It's made up of two Greek words, which mean to put into mind. The word correct there, sometimes translated admonish, is to put into mind. And what that tells me as I think about it is that I'm usually, when I'm correcting somebody or when I'm being corrected, I'm not being given new information. I'm being reminded of something I already know. Is that your experience as well? When I sin, when I fail, when I, when I need to be corrected or rebuked, I, I'm almost never being told something that I don't already know. And that doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. I know what I'm doing. It's not, Father, forgive me because I know not what I've done. It's, Father, forgive me because I have every knowledge of what I'm doing right now. I do know what it is, and I need somebody to regularly put it back into my mind to remind me. Why is it important to read the Bible every single day? Why is it important to pray every single day? Why is it important to be in fellowship, to make gathering on the Lord's Day a priority? Because you need the constant reminder from the people around you about the things you already know. And so when it comes to correction, Paul says that that's one of his key responsibilities in discipleship. Discipline and discipleship go together, you see. But it's more than just correction because you're not only putting things into people's minds that they already know, but you are also, in some cases, teaching things that they've never heard before. It's the word we get didactic from in English, the word teaching there. Uh, you are carefully and methodically instructing them in God's word so that when you get together and when the discipleship occurs and training occurs, it occurs around truth. That's the key. Any kind of mentorship that is not built around truth is not true discipleship. True discipleship is about taking the truth and applying it to individuals in a way they can understand, apply, and obey. A real disciple is somebody who says, follow me as I follow Christ. A real disciple is somebody who says, obey as I obey. They live truthfully in front of other people. And so Paul is saying that if, if you're going to have an effective ministry in the church of discipleship, and that's something that we as a body here need to have and need to, to cherish and cultivate, then it has to be one of genuine loving correction and careful, systematic teaching around the truth. But what does that lead to? What does it lead to? The next word I want you to look at there is the word maturity. Maturity. 
So he says that we are going to proclaim Christ and we are going to correct everyone or admonish everyone. And we're going to teach everyone so that we can present everyone what? Mature. What does mature mean? I mean, we know it in our culture because we'll say that somebody's immature when they're acting in a way that's childish. Or we'll say that somebody is immature because they don't, they don't have a fully developed understanding of something. Well, both of those concepts really fit into the idea of maturity here, but in a biblical sense, to be mature is to be complete. You could almost switch out the word if you wanted. The word complete, to be at the end, to finally reach the goal for which everything was striving. So do you have it in your heart to dedicate yourself to the sometimes difficult task of working with other people within the body of Christ in order to correct them and even instruct them so that each and every one of them would be fully mature and grown up in the truth so that when the Lord returns on that great day of glory, they are found to be in him. You see, one of the things that a person does in order to help somebody grow to maturity is to help them make sure that they really do belong to God in the first place. You know, all of discipleship has an element of evangelism in it because so often you're going to encounter somebody who wants to grow in Christ only to realize that the reason they're not growing in Christ is because they're not in Christ. One of the first things that you have to do, I believe, when you're shepherding somebody and you're encouraging them and correcting them and teaching them is to say, do you really understand the gospel? Now, you might say, well, I grew up in the church. Of course I understand the gospel. I grew up in a Christian home. Of course I understand the gospel. May I suggest to you this morning that sometimes people who grew up in solid churches know the gospel less than people who didn't. Because it's something that they've been steeped in and marinated in. It's everywhere. They know the language. They've just sort of, um, uh, it's infused into them. And they can say it and they can give the right answers, but do they genuinely believe it? And the reason that you know someone truly believes it is because they have overcome the natural tendency of anybody who grew up in a church to think that their external conformity to rules is the same thing as bearing the fruit of the Spirit. That their external conformity to rules is the same thing as bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so as you begin to peel away the, the layers of sort of the externalism that can so often become encrusted around people who have, who have grown up and genuinely wonderful Bible-preaching churches and gospel-saturated homes, you get to the point where you realize that the phrase, every man, is actually there for a reason because nobody is saved because they grew up in a Christian home or went to a Christian church. They're born again because it's an individual declaration of righteousness and the imputation of their sin to Christ and his righteousness to them. You know, we've talked about this a little bit at our church in the past because there is a move right now to kind of get away from this idea of what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement, which is sort of a fancy way of saying that Christ died specifically so that his righteousness could be given to you and your sin could be taken by him. He didn't just die for a whole big group of people and then just tell you, hey, be a part of that community and then I'll treat you as one of them when I return. No, he, he died with particular sheep in mind that we're going to be redeemed. And so it is our duty as we shepherd to shepherd in a way that treats those sheep that way as individuals. And you know what? Sometimes the ones that are most in pain and most struggling are the ones that take the most attention, don't they? They're the ones that have to require the most work. But when we do that, we act like Christ. 
I've mentioned it before, but that book by Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Reed, is such an encouragement. And it reminds us over and over again that it's that bruised reed, the smoldering flax, that's the one that has Christ's attention. That's the one that, that, that he seeks out for, that, that, that he enters into the, the sorrow of that one. It's not to cast them off because they're not able to keep up with the rest. Now, that's not sentimentality, by the way. That doesn't mean that we get to just be smoldering flax, that we get to just be the weak ones, lay back and act broken so that people will come and pay attention to us. That's not what he's saying. But for the one that is genuinely struggling, that is the one who needs more grace. And there is an abundant and amazing grace found in him. And that can be shown in us the way we treat others. Now, in terms of applying this, let's go back and look at it for how it would be for us. Let me apply this now. First of all, when it comes to suffering, most of us are not suffering the way Paul suffered. Very few of us are in prison under house arrest. But everybody has their own suffering. Suffering's relative, you know. It's relative to your situation. It's relative to your constitution. It's relative to your situation. But every one of us, if we are to follow him, he has told us, should expect some degree of persecution and some degree of suffering. And maybe you're suffering. The cost of discipleship for you is going to be stepping outside of your comfort zone and being engaged in a relationship with somebody in our body where discipleship occurs. Some of you might be terrified to disciple someone and might be terrified to be discipled. Some of you might say, the last thing I want to do is be involved in any kind of discipleship. And I'm going to encourage you that that might be exactly what the Lord is pressing you into as a result. Maybe it's through that suffering that you'll be able to complete what is, what is lacking, not in the sufficiency of his sacrifice or his grace or his gospel, but you're the one who's going to be the conduit that makes that gospel real to somebody because they see it at work in your life. One of the ways that you can disciple somebody is to fail in front of them. It's to fail in front of them. It's to say, you know, I'm struggling to walk with the Lord just like you are. And rather than us meeting up in some third location, rather than me going to your home where everything is clean and tidy and ready and I show up as the expert from out of town, why don't you come over to my house and just live life with me for a little while? Why don't you watch me do what I do? You know, I've said this before and I'll say it to everybody. I want, one of the things that I respect so much about my wife Catherine is that this is how she likes to disciple young women. So much of it is, is with them side by side doing that work of being a, a wife and a mom of encouraging them in the midst of it all. And not just teaching a class or going through a book. Those are wonderful and those are certainly edifying, but sometimes the most powerful examples that you're going to have in your life are people who allow you just to watch them live life and, and struggle through the way that everybody else does to help you see that it's normal. It's normal to struggle. What about service? That's suffering. What about service? You're going to be called to be a servant from time to time? You certainly are. There's going to be these requirements set upon you by God to actually take up the, the towel and the basin, as it were, the way that he served, the way that he ministered to his disciples. When there was nobody else there to do it, he did it. But Jesus didn't say, well, you know what? Foot washing is really not in my job description. I am the rabbi after all. So I guess we're just going to have to sit here with feet unwashed, I mean, eventually someone's going to have to look around and realize this and step up and solve the problem. No, he said, I'll go down and I will do that. And he did that to every one of his disciples, even Judas, who had already betrayed him. And by the way, the other 11 who would scatter in a matter of hours. 
Why do I say the cost of discipleship is service? Because so often the very people that you serve to your own expense and to your own detriment at times are the very people who will stab you in the back or just walk away from you. And that's not uncommon in an effort to bring people to maturity in Christ. And so we embrace it because it's exactly what our Lord suffered as well. There's nothing unique in it. But that suffering is closely tied to the service and closely tied to the stewardship as well. What has God given you to be a steward over? And what has he entrusted you with? When I lived up in L.A., we would go down and, and visit Huntington Gardens. And um, you might know this. That used to be a private home. Like, those gardens used to be, like, Huntington's Gardens. Um, imagine if, if, if you tried to f- keep that up by yourself. Imagine if, if, if you just, like, every Saturday morning, like, your wife expected you to get up and, like, take care of the yard. And, like, what you had was Huntington Gardens. I mean, how incredibly overwhelming would that be? I mean, you would say, you would die. It would, it would completely consume you. You would never get it done. You would never accomplish the task. Now, if that applies to just a bunch of plants, imagine what it's like in a church where eternal souls are being cared for. Imagine the stewardship that is present even here in our church. Imagine how much work that must be and how God might be moving in your heart even today to help with the stewardship of that oversight so that it's not just a few that are trying to do this, but everyone doing it. Imagine if every one of us committed to truly caring for somebody else, first in our family, then other believers, the ones in our church, and the ones that we have influence over. If we all were to do that, then every single one of us would be cared for and built up and nurtured in this way, and the church as a whole would be healthier almost immediately, I can guarantee it. Not because it would work as a program, but because that's what God promises. Oswald Sanders wrote a book on leadership many years ago, and it was such an excellent book, and I've read it over and over again. And, and in it, he quotes a missionary named Leslie Newbegin, who says that we need a whole lot less leadership training today in churches. What we really need are saints and servants. But when we start marking out people and training them as quote-unquote leaders, what we end up doing inadvertently is creating a whole group of proud intellectuals. Now, I don't think we're going to take away any kind of leadership training in our church because of that quote. I do think leaders need to be trained, but leaders need to be reminded that leadership is not meant to be putting you in a position above everybody else so that they serve you, but putting you in a position to more effectively serve the body so that the saints can be matured, be ready for the day of the Lord's visitation. Stewardship is amazing, and it's been entrusted to us. Now, in terms of the actual work that's involved, the calling, if you will, The cost was earlier. The calling for us. Let's apply that as well. The proclamation of Christ is the proclamation of the gospel. Are you prepared to proclaim the gospel? The true gospel, the whole gospel, the real gospel, even within the church. The gospel that that Christ's righteousness clothes you. You know, so much of the discipleship that goes on is reminding people they are already righteous in the eyes of Christ. Think about it this way. Christ says that when when you believe when you're transformed, when you're made a new creature, 
He takes his righteousness and he clothes you with it. You are perfectly clothed in his righteousness. The only works that are ever going to be evaluated by him are the works that he performed for you and gave you. And yet because of our nature, because we are all by nature legalists, we are all by nature people who want to do something to earn back a portion of what's been given to us. We, we are all by nature possessors of this debtor's ethic where we want to pay God back some of what he's done for us. It's like we have this beautiful, perfect, holy robe of righteousness, and then the first thing that we do is we walk out there and we try to earn little ribbons and medals that we can pin to it, just to kind of show that we've done our part too. I mean, yeah, we're saved, we're born again, but you know, we've also done our part to make sure that we're pretty righteous as well. And then we go around kind of comparing our ribbons and our medals to other people's ribbons and medals. Not realizing that none of that is going to do anything for us in the end day. And in fact, it only clouds and covers up the very simple, elegant righteousness of Christ that was given to us. You know, discipleship is often helping people to throw away their external manifestations of holiness that they've created for themselves and embrace the real holiness that God gives you the power to manifest by walking away from the sinful temptations of the world that are so attractive to the flesh that we still carry with us until our new body. Those are the two sides of it. Discipleship is very simple. Help fallen human beings who are still trapped in their flesh not give in to the temptations to sin, which are still so strong, and help born-again believers to trust entirely and only in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that your position before him will never change in his eyes no matter what you do. That sin, past, present, future, has been dealt with once and for all on the cross. Amen? That's the key to it. Now, that's going to show itself up in two ways, both discipline and doctrine, both correction and teaching. What about correction? Well, correction is serious. Correction is discipline. Correction is making something right that is wrong. Correction is going into a person's life and having the authority and the passport to be able to call them out on something and call them to repentance. And that's not easy. That's not easy at all. I think about that when I think of church discipline. We don't talk about that very much, but now's a great time to bring it up because this is one of the key things that you'll find in a healthy church, and that is a commitment to church discipline. And you can't have a conversation about church discipline without reminding everybody that the end result and goal of all discipline is restoration. Restoration. Discipline is not the church's way of getting rid of difficult people. There's a guy who um, started a company because he was fed up with looking at all of those motivational posters that people were putting up around the office. And, and, and so he started a company called despair.org. And he created a whole series of posters called demotivational posters. And, and in this one poster, which I, which I like, um, and I might put it up in our office if, if, if I feel like doing that someday. Depends on how the staff behave. But there's this picture of an office, and, and everything has been moved out of it. The desks are bare. Um, wires are hanging from the ceiling. You can tell that this office used to be filled with people and now it's just completely empty. And the caption underneath reads, sometimes the best way to boost morale is to fire all the unhappy people. Now, I, sometimes I think pastors treat church discipline that way. Like the, the best way to improve your church's health is to just get rid of all the people who are difficult. That's not what 
real discipline is. Real discipline, real correction is leaning in and having the courage and the humility to call people out for the sin that they're committing and then partner with them in the restoration process to see them mature through it and overcome. Sometimes churches don't think enough about church discipline and sometimes it shows up in the fact that they, they do it without really considering the fact that a human eternal soul is at stake. That when the church partners together and agrees that correction needs to happen, admonishment, discipline, that when the church collectively agrees in that third step, when it is said to the church, that they are really declaring that they believe that, that God has rendered this person guilty of not living up to their confession of faith, that has eternal consequences. It should not be entered into lightly. Back in the 50s, there was a professor who recommended a procedure in which to ensure that the President of the United States would make a wise decision were he ever to engage in a nuclear attack. And he said, instead of having somebody carry around a briefcase with codes, what he would recommend is that those codes were put inside of a capsule and that capsule was inserted beside the heart of a volunteer. And the only thing that that volunteer carried around with him was a large butcher knife. And if the president ever decided to call a nuclear strike, he would have to take the butcher knife from that volunteer and cut open his chest and reach in and pull out the codes and with blood on his hands and blood on the floor, read out the necessary codes in order to launch the strike. And the idea was that if somebody had to do that and actually see what it's like to have innocent blood on their hands, they might rethink how quickly they would call such a strike. In some ways, when it comes to discipline and correction, especially within the church, you need to have the same kind of care. Because far more than just a human body is at stake, an eternal soul is at stake. So how do we handle that biblically? Well, we know there are four steps to discipline. Number one is there is a personal confrontation. If there's been an offense, you're supposed to go one-to-one -to, -one to somebody and to correct them, to admonish them. And if they repent, then you forgive and they're restored and it's over. I, I like to say around here that church discipline goes on all the time and nobody knows it because it is being settled at that first stage. But if it doesn't get settled there, then it says to bring a witness. Now, a witness is not your friend who agrees with you. A witness is somebody else who is an eyewitness to the offense. This goes back to Deuteronomy 17, where the very life of that person was at stake, and you couldn't put that person to death except for the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if you were one of the witnesses, you had to throw the first stone. You had blood on your hands if you were going to accuse somebody of something. And a witness is a witness. A witness witnesses something. That's why witnesses are called witnesses. A witness is not somebody who thinks something happened to somebody else, and so they're going to go and tell you about it so you can get involved. A witness has to see something that is sinful. And if the person doesn't repent of that sin, they bring somebody else who witnessed that. And the reason for that is that God is very jealous for the protection of the reputation of people in the church. And so nobody needs to receive an accusation against anybody unless there are two witnesses. But if they do witness this and they do agree upon it and the person still refuses to repent, then it is told to the church. Not as a way to embarrass the person, but as a way for that assembly to come together and to know what's going on. 
because this person is professing faith in Christ, but they're not living it. And by the way, Matthew 18 was written before the church was formed at Pentecost, so Jesus did not have in mind a building where people gathered. It was simply the assembly, the gathering of his followers, whatever that looks like. However wide that sin had been spread, that's the assembly which is told about this. And then if the person still does not repent, they are cast out, they are excommunicated, they are denied the opportunity to share in the Lord's Supper because that would communicate a fellowship that they don't actually have because they're not really believers. So you can see why this is so serious. And when I go back to the text here in Colossians 1.28, the idea of correcting or admonishing includes the very small things and includes the very big things. Are we prepared to do both? What about teaching? Will you teach? Will you teach your family? Will you teach the people in your immediate sphere of influence? Will you consider becoming a teacher so that you can help lead in a fellowship group? Or will you take on that responsibility that's difficult sometimes, but one that bears so much fruit if we concentrate and allow the work of God to work through us? Because the end result is that each person will be brought to maturity, will be brought to the end, the completion, fully grown as it were. And that's the great joy, isn't it? To look at somebody and say, I know you're not fully grown yet, but with the right influence, the right teaching, the right counseling, the right ministry, you can be. Earlier today, we were talking about this in the seminar, and we were talking about the difference between counseling and influence. Counseling is like that seasonal, annual, if you will, intensive discipleship that happens for a particular purpose and for a particular period of time. Influence is more that, that perennial kind of discipleship that goes on in the church as you're regularly connected here. I pray that both are going on here at this body all the time. And that we're constantly training up a next generation who will do that. Now, this is hard work. Look at verse 129. This is hard work. Paul calls it toil. Toil. So, the cost of discipleship is there in the suffering, in the service, in the stewardship. The, the actual calling of discipleship is that you're supposed to, with all wisdom, learn how to correct and to teach people and bring them to maturity. But then it ends again with kind of this, this warning, this condition that it's great toil. It's a word that means agony. It's hard. But he says this, and it's so encouraging at the end. I am struggling with all, not his might, all of his energy, being his, being Christ, all of his energy. The antecedent there is Christ, the one that we're trying to make everyone mature in. It is his energy, and it's his energy that powerfully works in me. Wouldn't it be amazing if all of us were toiling and struggling, doing the hard work of admonishing and teaching, trying by God's grace as servants and stewards of this local assembly, to present our fellow brothers and sisters mature in Christ. And even though it's a very difficult, experiencing at every step of the way this incredible, spiritual, eternal, supernatural power that works in you. That's the power of the gospel. Because anything else that we would accomplish to this end would only be behavior modification if the soul is not made new. If there's anything that we can take away from this, it would be simply this. The very key to an effective, healthy ministry of discipleship in any local church comes down to the willingness on the part of the people within that body 
to accept the cost and the calling of that discipleship. Understanding that it's the power of God that works in us and through us. To correct, which means, again, to call to mind, to remind, and sometimes even discipline, and also to teach and to instruct so that we would become a people that are mature. And on the day of his return, share in the glory of allowing us to achieve that final consummation when all of the residual flesh that is constantly dragging us down is replaced with that resurrection body and we get to enjoy him forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this wonderful truth. Pray that as we lift our voices now in song once again to you, that it will be from hearts that are reminded of the great grace of the gospel poured out upon us. A grace that allows us to suffer, that allows us to serve, that allows us to look over the vast stewardship that you've entrusted us with, and as overwhelming as it appears sometimes, confidently move forward day by day, knowing that you will provide laborers. You will send people into the field. We just need to trust you. I ask, Lord, that we would also be a people that are set apart because of our understanding of the coming glory that is to be revealed at your coming, that we would live in light of your return, that we would see that everything is working together for good, for purposes that you had ordained long before the foundation of the world. May we also be those that faithfully proclaim that every single man and woman on an individual level is called to an understanding of this truth and belief in it, that there is no righteousness that they bring to the table, nothing of their own that they accomplish. Oh, free us from that desire. Let us rest in full contentment upon what you have done, your finished work, so that we can lovingly and humbly correct one another and receive correction, living above reproach but never above rebuke, and that we can teach one another that we would learn not only the theological things, but also the good things, the helpful, practical things that are necessary in any kind of relationship, as you tell us in Titus 2. And that all of this would work together for our maturity, being able to one day be presented before you, clothed in your righteousness and in great joy. To your glory and honor, in Jesus' name, amen.